0: How is everybody? Good. Hey, don't tell anyone I said this. The 9 o'clock was like, it was like preaching to a bunch of corpses this morning. It was like, it was like, how are you guys doing? It's like, I mean, it's just, there's worse places you can be, guys. Uh, anyways, um, you should have received a Christmas card from us. We do this every year, and we try to outdo ourselves. Last year, we did a picture where we dressed up as cowboys and run DMC. And I know that's hard to top, but uh, this year we made Lego figurines of ourselves and and took pictures of that. And so, uh, Merry Christmas! This is this is this is our way of showing appreciation for you guys. So, uh, a couple other quick announcements I have. Moving on, um, we have these fun uh, cat kiss mugs to raise money for our El Salvador trip. Uh, these are the the, the hot button um, gift giving idea this year for Christmas. It's a It's a cat that looks like a cactus, and it's on a mug, and uh, we're selling those (laughs) for $10. It's ridiculous, but uh, they're $10, and the proceeds go to missions work in El Salvador, and we also have t-shirts that are $20, and again, all the proceeds go to our missions work in El Salvador, and I also have a letter from my friend JT up here that says, good luck, don't screw it up. So I'm going to try not to do that in service, put that there, and... um, we should be good. I think that's all I got. Last thing I need to tell you, um, I am using a translation of the Bible called the Christian Standard Bible. I typically use the Holman Christian Standard Bible and they have revised it. They've made some minor changes. So today when I read to you, not a huge deal, but there may be just small minor differences in what I read versus what is in your Bible. Not a big deal. Again, it's not you, it's me. I'm the one that made the change. Nothing wrong with your Bible. And so again, just letting you know as I read today that there might be some differences, okay? So... If you've never been to the church before, uh, let me kind of catch up to where we are. We're in the book of Acts, which is the fifth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's about the birth of the church. It's about the disciples of Christ going out throughout all of the known world at the time, teaching about Jesus, sharing the love of God and the message of God with other people. Now, where we are in the story is we're about 10 years into the birth of the church. The leader of the church, Peter, has just been sent by God to an area to meet an Italian man. He's a Roman soldier and his name is Cornelius. Now the reason why this is important is this is the first time in the New Testament where someone who is not a Jewish person is offered a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this guy Cornelius, who's a Roman soldier, uh, becomes a follower of Jesus. He and his whole household, his family, his friends, they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. And this has opened up a completely different avenue in the Bible. Now it's not just the Jewish people who are the focus, it is all of us. So we talked about last week that it doesn't matter your skin color, your nationality, the mistakes you've made in the past, any choices you've made, everyone is invited to be in the family of God. Now that doesn't mean everyone accepts that invitation, but everyone is invited to be in the family of God, okay? Now this week we're going to talk about this. We're going to ask ourselves the questions, can we call ourselves little Christs? Now, it sounds odd, but in Acts chapter 11 that we're going to cover today, it's the first time that people who followed Jesus were ever called Christians. And the word Christian literally means little Christs. So we're already starting to sweat a little bit, right? So uh, can we call ourselves little representations of Jesus Christ? Okay. Okay. So, you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. If you didn't get a notes handout, if you have a smartphone, the Uversion app, if you have that app, it's free. All of our notes are on there. If you don't have either one of those, but you have a Bible, we're in the fifth chapter, or I'm sorry, the fifth book of the New Testament, the 11th chapter, in Acts. And if you don't have any of those things, there is still no escaping. I'm going to read it to you and break it down. So, (laughs) if you are in this room, you're going to hear the Word of God today. So, I'm going to pray and uh, we'll jump into this and we'll see where God takes us, okay? Glad all of you are here this morning. So good to see you. All right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you, God. We thank you so much for everything you've done for us. Father, we pray that this morning that you would open up our eyes, open up our ears, help us, Lord, not only to hear the truth but God to absorb it and to apply it to our lives. Father, we pray for every church in our community. We pray for every nonprofit in our community. We pray, God, that your kingdom is advanced, God, not ours, but yours. We pray, Father, for all the people this time of year who may be lonely or have family issues, that, um, God, Christmas isn't always a a happy time for everyone, Lord. And we pray, God, that you keep your hands on people who are struggling during this time of year, God, and and, uh, and help us, Lord, to know that we have community with you and that we have community with each other. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to start in chapter 11 of the book of Acts. I'm going to read a little bit and then I'll do my best to explain what we're reading, okay? The apostles and the brothers and sisters who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Peter began to explain to them step by step. I was in the town of Joppa praying, and I saw in a trance an object that resembled a large sheet coming down and being lowered by its four corners from heaven, and it came to me. Then I looked closely and considered it, and I saw four-footed animals on the earth, the wild beasts, the reptiles, and the birds of the sky. I also heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat." "'No, Lord,' I said, "'for nothing impure or ritually unclean "'has ever entered my mouth. "'But a voice answered from heaven a second time, "'What God has made clean, you must not call impure.'" Now, this happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into heaven. At that very moment, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to accompany them with no doubts "'These six brothers also accompanied me, and we went into the man's house. "'He reported to us that he had seen an angel standing in his house saying, "'Send to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also named Peter. "'He will speak a message to you to which you and all your household will be saved.'" There is a lot in the Bible about this guy Cornelius. There's actually more written about Cornelius, this Italian Roman centurion. There's more written about him getting saved than there is about the Apostle Paul getting saved. And there's even more written about him than the day of Pentecost, which is when the church started, when the Holy Spirit of God poured out on everybody. Why? Why is there so much written about this Italian guy? The reason why is this was a dramatic shift in the bible's narrative now again it's not just focused on the jewish people now the word of god is focused on everybody so this monumental change also brought monumental criticism so after peter gets back from this area called joppa right he had just seen this miraculous thing this entire household of non-jews is filled with the Holy Spirit. They could, they could hear them speaking in tongues and it was very, very miraculous. And this thing is going on. And Peter's on cloud nine. He's like, wow, look what God has done. Rolls back into Jerusalem. And you would think that all the other Christians would also be happy about this. So he tells them what has happened and they're not happy. In fact, they're critical of him. And they criticized him because he was hanging out with people that didn't look like them. Now, the group of individuals that were most vocal about this were called the circumcision party. All this meant, well, these were a group of people who thought that all new Christians should have to go through all the same thing that the Jews had to go through, specifically circumcision, that all the men had to be circumcised because that's what they did in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And so it's interesting when they complained to Peter, the critics didn't talk about the gospel. Well, Peter, you taught bad theology. Or they didn't, they didn't talk about the Holy Spirit. Man, wow, they spoke in tongues or whatever. They didn't talk about those things. They were just worried and they were upset that their traditions may be forgotten. It was this old regime holding on to things, saying, well, we don't want people who don't look exactly like us within the mix. So they didn't care about the evidence. They didn't care what God had done they were offended because their leader had done something that they were not comfortable with. Now, let me give everyone in this room just just a good piece of knowledge. If you ever lead, if you ever manage, if you're ever the first to do something, if you ever take charge, if you ever take action, there will always be offended critics. If you alleviated world hunger this morning, someone would complain about how you did it, right? If you solved all the world's problems, somebody, you ever know those guys that play way too much football on Xbox that they start thinking that they can tell six foot eight, 400 pound guys how to play the game, right? You will all have those kinds of people in your life whenever you do something, all right? Now, the old Peter wouldn't have handled that very well. I think I just showed you a little part of the old Corey right there, but anyways, the old Peter <laughs> would not have taken this criticism very well. This is the guy that one time someone tried to lay a hand on Jesus and he took a dagger and cut the dude's ear off, right? That was the old Peter. The new Peter has the spirit of God in him and he acts differently, that's very important. Because he had the spirit of God in him, God had given Peter the gift of wisdom. And when the gift of wisdom is in us, we can have empathy for people even when there are critics. So Peter was looking at a group of people who were cutting him down and he didn't look at them with hate. He didn't like punch them in the face or return their insults. He had compassion for them. So the Spirit of God helps us discern what's right and wrong. The Spirit of God gives us wisdom and the Spirit of God gives us compassion even for people that don't like us. So how do Christians respond to criticism? How should we? Peter dealt with undeserved criticism. He didn't do anything that was worthy of being criticized, but he didn't get defensive. What he did is it says he explained for them, he clarified to them what really happened. He said, guys, I know you're upset. Let me tell you what happened. Let me explain what went on. Maybe that'll help you. Okay. So we are to act, you and I, we are to act like Jesus and we're, at, we're to act like Peter in this instance when people criticize us. What does that look like? That means when people are critical, we need to pray for God's wisdom. We need to be kind. We need to share the truth with them. We don't need to return evil for evil, right? When someone cuts me down, I get on Facebook and like let everyone know how bad of a person, person X is, right? And we also need to keep the greater good in mind, which means, guys, we need to protect the reputation of Christianity. So some of us are squabbling within the church, It's not good for Christianity for you to tell everyone about it, right? Like that we should look out for the greater good of Christ's church. All right, let's move forward. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them just as it did on us in the beginning. I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. So when Peter says it happened to them just like it happened in the beginning, He was referring to when all the Jewish people in Jerusalem who were followers of Jesus were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts chapter 2. He also remembered when Jesus had had a conversation with him, Peter, over a decade ago, that they had had a conversation and Jesus told Peter, John baptizes with water, you guys will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so this was a command from God that Peter and the rest of the Christians were to go out and to be a part of people being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so Peter said, since God told me to do this, how could I say no? How could I hinder him? How could I oppose him? I had to do what he told me to do. And so here's why Peter could do what God wanted him to do. Peter trusted Jesus that whatever Jesus said, he believed in and he thought it was right. He believed that he had been called by God. So when God told him to do something, he trusted that calling. He trusted that God would provide for him and protect him wherever God sent him. So that brings up the question for us in the room. I think it was Paul in Romans chapter 8 who said, I am persuaded, I'm convinced. And then he gives a whole laundry list of all the things that he's persuaded about. I think we need to ask ourselves sometimes, we say we're followers of Christ, but are we persuaded that God is going to look out for us, that he has our best interests in his heart, that he's going to provide and protect for us, and that he's going to lead us where we're supposed to go? Are we persuaded? If we're not persuaded, let me ask you this. Do we set up memorials in our life to remember how far God has brought us? Let me give you an example. I used to journal. I'm not really a journaler. You know, I used to like, make fun of people who journaled. No, no offense. But like, I, I did this journal for a while. And that journal ended up becoming a, a book that I got to write a couple of years ago. But I journaled. And I would go back and I would read things that I would journal about from years and years and years ago. And I'd say, wow, God, you really have brought me a, a, a long distance. In the Old Testament, they would set up altars God would do something miraculous and they would build like this stone altar. And so for generations, people would walk by and be like, hey, that's the time God did this for his people. Wow, that reminds us God is good, right? God takes care of us. And so do we trust that God has good things for us? Do we remember the things that God has done for us in the past? And that builds up our faith that God's not going to let us down. Okay. So Peter explained what happened to the critical Jews, right, to to his Jewish Christian friends. And for the the most part, it was okay, right? The the problem was solved, sort of. In that moment, they took his word and they're like, all right, praise God, these non-Jewish people are now saved like we're saved. Awesome. But for centuries after that, Jewish Christians would often argue when pagans, non-believers, when they would come into the Christian family... How should they look? How should they dress? How should they talk? Do they need to go through certain things? Like, and they would debate that for literally hundreds of years. But here's what we learn in this instance, and this is very important for us. We learn that if people will let God touch their heart, and that if we will act in a Christ-like manner when we have conflict, uh, people can change. Not only can non-believers become believers— but very traditionalistic, very close minded sometimes very stubborn Christians can also change if we will act like Christ in times of conflict. Here's something we need to remember, though, and we can often forget this, especially in a church like ours. Our church is very community-minded. We're very outreach-minded, and that's a good thing. But if we're not careful, we will forget that the Bible instructs us to take care of our brothers and sisters in Christ first, and then once we have a healthy family, this, then we can go beyond that and help the world around us. In fact, the Bible says the first prerequisite for being a minister is your, your, your household has to be in order. And so our household has to be in order before we can minister to the community around us. And we need to remember that, okay? Next part. Now, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. That's not Tennessee. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord." Now, if you weren't with us uh, a couple of weeks ago, in Acts chapter 8, there was a guy named Saul. Saul did not like the followers of Jesus. He eventually becomes the Apostle Paul. He gets saved. But at first, he does not like the Christians. He starts persecuting the Christian church. He even goes so far to kill a man named Stephen. Now, right after that happened, in Jerusalem, where, where most of the Christians were, They dispersed. They ran, right, because they knew that they were going to get killed if they didn't. So they dispersed. And it says that they went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And when they spread out, they would tell people about Jesus, but they'd only tell Jewish people about Jesus. They would go to the synagogues, and they would only talk to Jewish people. Now, let me show you on a map just to give you an idea of how far they traveled, okay? Christianity started right here in Jerusalem, okay, right where this orange line is, Now, they went straight north when they scattered to the Phoenician plain, which is in modern-day Lebanon. That's how you say that. It's not Lebanon. It's Lebanon, and it's right up there, right? (laughs) (laughs) Then they went west into the island of Cyprus, and they even went as far north up there where that that last arrow is into modern-day Turkey, and that's where the city of Antioch was, okay? And we'll get to that here in a second. So the scattered Christians, they would tell other people about Jesus, but they'd only tell Jewish people about Jesus. And so what happened was, it says there were some unnamed men from an area called Cyprus, that island I showed you, in modern-day Libya, an area called Cyrene. They went into the heavily Roman and Greek area of Antioch, and they kind of broke the rules, man's rules, not God's rules. They broke the rules and they started telling Greeks and Romans about Jesus. Now, obviously, Jesus was cool with this because it says the Lord's hand was with them and a large number of them became followers of Jesus Christ. Now, Antioch was a fascinating city. It was a Roman city and it was very paganistic, which means they worshiped all kinds of God. And it was very hedonistic, which means there was basically no rules, essentially. Lots of bad stuff they could do. Hey, here's a fun fact for all of you. Christians were originally called atheists by the Romans and Greeks. Did you guys know that? We were the first atheists. The reason why Christians were called atheists is the Romans and Greeks believed in a lot of gods. We only believed in one. So they called us non-believers, atheists, not theists. That's what they called us. So the first atheists were you and I, Christians. So in this area, in Antioch, there was this very aggressive evangelism by the Christians. Now, when I say aggressive, I don't mean they beat people with a King James Bible. That didn't get written for another 300 years, 1300 years or so, so sorry about that. They didn't beat people with Bibles. When I say aggressive, they were intentional. They made it their point to tell people about Jesus. And because they were aggressive about it, many people were saved in this extremely evil city. And they were saved by outsiders people that weren't from Jerusalem, but people who were from outside of that. Because these men loved the gospel, they loved Jesus, and they loved other people, the entire world was about to start to change, and it was really gonna start to happen in Antioch. So there's this, Antioch has become kind of a model for modern day Christians, and it models for us that we are to engage people, even people that are dramatically different from us. We are to engage people, we're to evangelize, which means we tell people the gospel, the news about Jesus, and we show people the gospel. We live in such a way that models Jesus. We teach the word, we minister to people who have needs, and we tell people that they can be reconciled to God and that their past mistakes can be forgiven. What a refreshing message when we hear that all the bad things we have done, Jesus forgives like that, right? and that we hear this message and we can move forward, all right? Let's talk a little bit more about Antioch. So the news about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Okay. So the original 12 disciples, which was actually the original 11, and then they grafted another guy in. But let's say the original 12 disciples that followed Jesus, they were content to stay in Jerusalem. That was their home. That was their home base. They were content to minister, which is fine, to people that were like them. The church was growing. They needed people there. It was fine. They were more comfortable hanging out in an area that they were comfortable in. Barnabas, on the other hand, was a little radical. He was a second generation Christian, kind of a second wave, and his heart was to leave his home that he was comfortable in and start to go to areas that were extremely uncomfortable, to talk to people who worshiped false gods and did things that were grotesque and people who had very depraved lifestyles. That was Barnabas's call. He wanted to go to the fringe. That was his desire. And so what we see is this. We have a second wave Christian who is taking the gospel into unreached territory and making it his focus to bridge uncomfortable relationships. To go out to the people that most people just were not comfortable hanging out with and sharing the good news with them. Now, if you remember about Barnabas from a couple of weeks ago, if it wasn't for Barnabas, the Christians in Jerusalem would have never accepted Saul when he became a Christian. Now, if it wasn't for Barnabas, our whole New Testament might look completely different. So ironically, this volunteer evangelist, he was a layman, right? Like, which means he was just a volunteer. He didn't get paid for it. He eventually becomes the pastor in one of the craziest cities in the world and grows this huge church. The church got so huge that he needed help. And so he said, well, I need someone to help me teach all these Thousands and thousands of people. Where can I find someone? Well, he went out to, mod, to modern day Turkey and found Saul. He was living in Tarsus. He'd been there for about 10 years. And so Barnabas goes and says, dude, I need you to help me in Antioch, man. Like the church is growing like crazy. And so Saul went back with Barnabas. They went to Antioch and it says for a year, they taught large numbers. I don't know what that is. Probably in the upper thousands, right? Like 9, 10, 11,000 people, probably somewhere in that ballpark in Antioch. And it said this is the first place that followers of Jesus were ever called Christians. Here's what's interesting. The word Christian only appears in the Bible three times. It's what we call ourselves, and that's, that's fine, but it's not an overtly biblical term. And in fact, the term Christian was a derogatory term. The Romans would see the followers of Jesus, and they're like, well, you're not Christ, but you're, you're little Christ's. You're, you're Christians. And so it's interesting. The followers of Jesus didn't get their feelings hurt by that. They're like, you're right. We're not perfect like Jesus, but we're trying to live as closely as we can to Jesus. Little Christs. yeah, that's fantastic. We'll take it, right? So what was meant to be derogatory was exactly what the Christians wanted to be called. Little Christ's, little representations of Jesus Christ on earth, okay? Last part. So in those days... Some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them was named Agabus. He stood up and he predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his abilities, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this by sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas... Saul. Okay, so what happened was this. There was a Christian man named Agabus who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, if you're a geographer in here, came down from uh, uh, Jerusalem to Antioch doesn't make any sense. When you're reading the Bible, when it says they went up or down, it doesn't mean north and south. It means sea level. When it says they went down, they went to a city that was a lower sea level. When it says they went up, they went up a hill to a city. It's not north and south. It's literal topography, okay? So this man who was a prophet named Agabus got a word from God that there was going to be a severe famine. It hadn't happened yet, but it was coming. Now, if you go back and study Egyptian history, which I know all of you guys do in your free time, right? When you're studying Egyptian and Roman history, there are many records of in AD 46, there was a global famine. So the Bible is very accurate when it writes this. It went all throughout the Roman world, which was essentially the entire world at this time, okay? So here's what we see happen. Now we have a crisis that expands beyond the Christian bubble. So it's not just the Christian bubble now. There is something happened globally that needs the attention of a large group of people. So this was a situation to where it wasn't just the gospel being spoken, Now the gospel had to be lived out by doing good deeds. Now this goes along with the Bible perfectly. James, the brother of Jesus, said that faith without works is dead. So if we tell people that we love them, if we tell people that Jesus loves them, but we never do anything to show that love, we have failed. We have not done what we're supposed to do. We don't just say we love people. We don't just say that we believe in Christ and everything he said. We live in such a manner that shows that. So how did these people help, right, with this, this, this crisis, this lack of food? First, they trusted the man of God that God had sent. Now, I want to be careful with this. There's a lot of jokers that call themselves prophets, right? Right? You can turn on your TV at three o'clock in the morning and you'll see a prophet asking you to send 1995 for you know like a vial of water or something. You'll see all kinds of people who claim to be men and women of God. Be careful with that. But this guy Agabus was a trusted man. He had a good reputation and the Holy Spirit told him that something bad was coming, so they listened. Not only did they listen, they prepared before there was a crisis. The way our church does that is we're a debt-free church right now. So if something really bad were to happen, we try to have resources set aside and we don't have any debt right now that we can help people in times of need. The next thing that they did, and I want everyone to hear this, every single Christian participated. All of them, not just some of them, everyone gave, and this is specifically talking about money at this point, point. and they gave according to what they could give, according to their ability. But everyone saw that there was a need that people were starving to death, and they all pitched in. And they did not let their cultural or theological differences stop them. Now, let me pause there for a second. This doesn't mean that Christians should just pair up with every kind of faith. That's not what that means. This is saying that different kinds of Christians put their minor differences aside and pulled their resources together. In our day and age, that would be the equivalent of the Methodists, the Baptists, the Catholics, the Lutherans, the Pentecostals, the Anglicans, the non-denominational churches, the 4 square, the, You can go on and on and on. There's thousands of denominations. If we were to put our minor differences aside, pull our resources together, what could we do on planet earth right now? That's what that's referring to. Now, is discernment needed for that? Of course. Is wisdom needed for that? Of course. Of course you have to have those things in there to make sure that we help people the way that we should help people. So when it comes to helping people, Christians are commanded by Christ to help the helpless. We're commanded by Christ to defend the defenseless. But we're also called not to enable bad behavior. So it's a balance, right? It takes a lot of wisdom. We're called to help people without manipulating them. What I mean is there have been churches that I've seen in the past where let's say they do a clothes drive, right? They have all these clothes for people in the community who can't afford clothes. And so they have people come up, but before they can get the clothes, you gotta fill out this card and be at four services, right? You gotta fill out this card and you have to like take this questionnaire. That's manipulation. And the church isn't supposed to help people with a manipulation. We're also called to help people regardless if they accept Jesus and regardless if they're grateful or not. That's hard. Let me tell you a story. The first big community service project I ever put together, this was maybe 2006, 2007. I was a youth pastor at a church here in town, and I got our youth group together, and our youth group raised, I don't know, four or $5,000. We got four or $5,000, and we bought a bunch of these huge boneless hams, already cooked. You just had to heat them in the oven. We did that. I called Walmart, and I got this huge partnership with Walmart, and we had I don't know, several, like hundreds hundreds of cans of green beans and corn and stuffing and cranberry sauce and basically everything you would need. Utensils, they had them in bags, everything for a hundred people to have a, a, a meal that would feed four people at Thanksgiving. So we did all this. It took me about two months to put it all together, thousands of dollars, lots of hours. We went and flyered it at Franklin Heights, which is, is gone now, but went and flyered out there at Franklin Heights and Gave out these flyers and said, all you need to do is just bring the flyer, redeem it, and we give you this bag and, you know, you know, have a great Thanksgiving. God bless you. We love you. That's what we did. And so we started to do this. Months and months of preparation. We went out there and flyered. I had 12, 13, 14-year-old kids just going by there, just loving on people and like telling them, hey, we just want to bless you and God loves you and did all this stuff. Rolled up the day to give this out. And there was a line as long as this room. I me mean, huge, and they all had their flyers, and I was so excited, and I'm like, man, this feels so good, and I just hope they're blessed by this, and, and I hope we can build bridges with people, and it was so good, and so I hop off this truck, got all these bags of hams and sides, and I get out, they're in these nice little bags with ribbons on them, and the first woman, I give it to her, and I'm just like, hey, we love you, God loves you, I, I, hope, this, I hope this is good for your family, it should feed four people, and she takes the bag, opens it up, looks in, it, and she looks at me and goes, is that it? It's the first person, right? And I was like, yes, that's two months of my life in that bag you're holding. Yes, (laughs) that's all I got. But it was at that moment, God taught me a lesson. Man, God is sovereign, and he knew that was going to happen. And God taught me a lesson in that moment, and I I didn't hear God, but I felt God say to me, Corey, will you help them anyways? Will you love them anyways? You want to know why? Because 1 John four nineteen says, we love and treat other people with grace and love because Jesus has done it for us first. And guess what? We haven't always been grateful either, have we? So we need to love people. Why? Because that's what a follower of Jesus does. We love people even if they're never grateful for it. So here's the thing. Acts chapter 11, the first time we were ever called Christians, is in the story that we read today. So from this chapter, again, this is where everyone gets nervous, let's take a little test, right? The first one is this. How do you and I do with criticism? <laughs> I'm laughing because I haven't always done well. Without fail, I will have taught four services this week to, to thousands and thousands of people and given it all I've gotten, and I, I, without fail, I'll get an email. Hey, there was a typo in my notes. Okay. (laughs) But how do we handle criticism? How do we handle criticism when, when sometimes we haven't done anything wrong? Do we handle it with grace? Do we handle it with love? Do we handle it with the truth? How do we handle that? Let me ask you this, do we love people? I know we say we do. I know every church says, love God, love people. Jesus said the whole Bible can be wrapped up in two sentences, love God, love people. Now, granted, the whole rest of the Bible explains how to do that. That's why we need to read the whole thing. But we say we love people all the time. That is the mantra of the church. We love God, we love people. Now, if we love people, the greatest thing you can ever do for someone is tell them about the love of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest thing you can ever do. There's a video by Pendulet, I've talked about it. I've been talking about it for years. It's, a, it's an old video on YouTube. Pendulet is an atheist comedian. He's got a huge show in Las Vegas. He's been around for a long time. Now Pendulette is still an atheist, does not believe in God. He tells this story though on, Face, or, uh, on, on YouTube about after one of his shows, a man runs up after the show Weeping, just crying, gives him a little Gideon's Bible and says, Pen, I love you. I love your humor. You've, you've, you know, I've been such a fan of yours for so long. And he goes, I'm a Christian and I love you so much that I have to tell you that if you don't give your life to Christ, you're going to go to hell. Now, Pen Gillette did not get offended by this. He even let the man pray for him. But what he did is he made a video and Pen an atheist, looked into the camera and said, All of you Christians, if you believe in God as much as you say you do, And if you believe that people like me who don't will suffer eternal damnation, why aren't you telling us more about it? Why aren't you going out of your way to let more people like me know what you think? Now, of course we need to do that in love. Of course we need to do that. We need to pray for God to send the right opportunities and the right timing. You know, the best way to do it, though, is if we would start building meaningful relationships with people we would have more opportunities to share the love of Christ with them. Guys, what that means is you've got to put down your stupid phones sometimes and look people in the eye and talk to them. Crazy, right? Novel idea that when you go into a coffee shop, a place designed to have conversations, when you go into a coffee shop, instead of being on your phone while your barista is talking to you and they're doing your thing, put it in your pocket, look at someone and say, hey, how's your day going? Hey, where are you from? What, you know, what's your name? I haven't seen you in here before. I come in here a lot, but I haven't seen you. Who, who are you? Most of the Starbucks on Memorial now comes to church here, not because I'm like some, you know, whatever, but because I know all of their names. I can tell you most of the cities that they're from. And I'm not bragging on me just as I go in there, I get to know people and I have meaningful relationships with people. And that's just a little small microcosm of my world. And all of us have these places. We have jobs and we have friends and we have schools and we have these families, we have neighbors, all these people that we can build meaningful, deep relationships with. Man, especially this time of year when people are lonely. People are lonely this time of year. Go out of your way to connect with someone. Let me ask you this, are we setting a good example for the generation coming after us? You know, I hear all these people complaining about Gen Xers and millennials, and all I can think is, who raised them? (laughs) Until you set a good example, until you've put some blood, sweat, and tears into the generation coming after you, please be quiet. Until you have taken some time to pour in Whenever I hear fathers and mothers say, oh, I can't believe them, they're your kids. They're watching you. They picked up those words somewhere in your home. They picked up those ideas. They act that way for a reason. Are we setting a good example? I'm not just talking about it for our children. You wouldn't believe how many weddings that I've done. I bet I've done 70 weddings in the last eight years. I've done tons of weddings over the years. I bet at half of those weddings, and guys, this isn't a joke, and I don't mean it to be funny, I bet at half of these weddings, I've had to stand behind the groom and reach my arms around him because he doesn't know how to tie a tie because he never had a man show him. How many women don't know how to value themselves because they never had parents that taught them that their value is not, can we just talk like adults, that their value is not in their boobs and in their cleavage and how they look, but that their value is in something bigger than that, right? Right? But the problem is, the problem is we don't have older women pouring into younger women. We don't have older men pouring into younger men. And not just that, guys. After we've poured into them, we need to encourage them to engage the darkness. Guys, I have two little beautiful blonde-haired blue-eyed girls. They go to public school, right? You know, like all that stuff, like they're out engaged in it. And I'm not trying to even say that to be mean, but I think sometimes we feel like we have to protect them from everything, and that's not it. The Bible says we need to train our children in the way of the Lord, knowing that God will put them on a righteous path. And when we have prayed for the Holy Spirit to insulate our kids, and we pray for protection over our kids, that we are to let them go as scary as that is. But if we don't have our children that are full of the light going into places that are dark, those places remain dark. And we live in a culture, guys, and, and again, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be demeaning. We live in a culture to where we argue over what personal pronouns mean. And if we don't have honest conversation with our children about this, we need people who are empathetic and loving to engage problems that guys most of us never thought we'd have to deal with. I'm only 38 years old. I never thought I'd have to deal with the idea of what is gender. I mean, my wife who has a degree in biology and and we're, we're almost 40 years old and we just never, but our kids will have to deal with this issue. And we want our children to engage that issue, love people and show them the light of Christ. Because if they don't, nothing changes. We have got to encourage our children to have a deep relationship with Christ and to step into places that are sometimes extremely uncomfortable, unreached, and uncomfortable. Can we honestly say, you and me, that we are little Christs? <laughs> Do people look at us and say, I know he's not Jesus, but he resembles Jesus? He talks like Jesus, he thinks like Jesus. I know he's not perfect, but you can tell that the dust of his rabbi, right? It means we follow close behind our teacher, that the dust of our rabbi is all over us, right? can people look at us and say, yeah, they're a little Christ. They are a Christian. So whenever we use that term, that's what it means, guys. So we throw around that term so loosely that we're 68% a Christian nation. We're 68% little Christs in our nation. I beg beg to differ. And if we do claim to be little Christ, that means that we will be showing the actions of Christ. That means that we, 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 we will be displaying the love of God through our charity, through our benevolence, and through our good works. Are we saved by our good works? Of course we're not. But because we are saved, we do good works. <laughs> that there should be evidence. You can tell me you're a little Christ. Well, you better be acting a little bit like Christ. Listen, let me tell you what the world needs now more than anything. More than anything right now on planet earth. The world needs little Christs to be walking around to every corner of it, in every school, in every job, at every concert, at every nonprofit, wherever people are. The world needs now more than anything little representatives of Christ because we carry the light. And when we walk into the darkness, if the light is in us and it's secure in us, the darkness can never overcome the light. If the world needs anything, listen to me closely, it needs you. Because if we have the Holy Spirit of God in us, we are the chosen instruments to take the truth to the darkness of the world. It's Christ in us, of course, but we are the instruments. He plays, but we are the instruments. He needs you. The world needs you. Your family needs you. Your kids need you. This next generation, they need you. MTSU needs you. The government needs you. Nonprofits need you. We need little Christs. We need people who act and resemble Jesus to go out into every corner of the world. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Listen, if you are in this room and you need prayer, for anything, There will be men and women at the front, both sides of the stage. If you need prayer for yourself, if you need prayer for a family member, if you need prayer for, for, for anything, literally anything, please let these men and women pray for you. There's communion all the way around you, and everyone is welcome to take that. The only thing that I ask of you is the Bible says you have to take communion with a repentant heart, which means you need to ask God to forgive you of your sins before you take the body and the blood represented in the, in the bread and the juice. If you are in here and you are not a believer, I'm really, really glad you're here. I hope you felt comfortable and I hope you come back. All I ask of you if you're a non-believer is keep an open mind. If you are looking for the truth, Jesus said, those who look, find. And I give you my word, you'll find the truth. Keep looking and keep an open mind. Here's what I ask of you after you take communion or if you're sitting in here in praying. I ask you to look at yourself and ask Jesus, pray, God, whatever is in me that's keeping me looking like a representative of you, whatever is in me that is keeping me from looking like a little Christ, God, show me and give me the strength to take the steps to, to ask for forgiveness or to stop doing something, whatever you need to do. So what I'm asking of you today is for you to ask God, God, whatever is in me that needs to change, show me. And then you have to be responsible enough to, to, to take action once he shows you, okay? That's what I ask of you today. And again, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I can't say it enough. Your neighborhoods, your city, your schools, your families, your jobs, they need you. They need, the, they need Christ in you, to shine through you. They need you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you and we praise you. God, thank you, Lord, for everyone in this room. Thank you that you've brought us together, Lord. Thank you, God, for your word that gives us clarity and instruction. God, bless my brothers and sisters in this room. God, help us, Lord, through this month, God, to just remember what the season is really about. It's about you, Father. Lord God, I pray that you honor the prayers that are, that are asked at the front. I pray, God, that you remind us how good you are through communion. And I pray, God, that you expose in us anything that needs to change. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you, God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself.